This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. What do you think of when you think of the medieval world? If you're like me, you think of Gregorian chants, knights and crusaders, and the bubonic plague. And you think of a world that is so exotic, so different from ours, that it's nearly impossible to comprehend. And when you think of medieval Christianity, you probably don't think of science or feminism. But maybe you should. At least that's what author and Fordham graduate Thomas Cahill thinks. In his book Mysteries of the Middle Ages and the Beginning of the Modern World, Cahill argues that the world as we now know it, the modern world, has its roots in the brand of Christianity that organized the lives and informed the intellectual and political beliefs of medieval Europeans. Mysteries of the Middle Ages is out in paperback from Anchor Books this week. It's the fifth book in Cahill's best-selling series, The Hinges of History, and the first to look at the making of the modern world. I spoke to Thomas Cahill about that book, why the Middle Ages were such a big deal, and about why we might want to think about the Virgin Mary when we think about Betty Friedan. Thomas Cahill, welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Nora. Let me ask you first, what is the story that happens in this book? What, what are you talking about in this book? The, the new book is called Mysteries of the Middle Ages, uh, and it, it really is um, the Catholic contribution to Western civilization. Medieval people didn't really think of themselves as Catholics, but looking back, that's what they look like to us. And um, they thought of themselves as Western Christians or Latin Christians or Roman Christians or something like that. But that's how it looks to us, and it's it's as good a way, as good a label to put on it as any. And what you have in this period, you have the the beginnings of a number of of either entirely new things or things that had been lost and are now recovered. The entirely new thing is feminism, the beginning of a distinct role for women in the world, which had really never occurred in earlier societies. It's only a beginning, but it's it's an enormous opening and an enormous change. You have the re-beginning of science. The Greeks had been very interested in science, which they called natural philosophy. And that was all largely lost after the fall of Rome, so that you had um, a world of magic and a world of strange little people running around casting spells on other people and things like that. You didn't really have science. But gradually, there was a recovery of Greek texts, and that sparked the beginning of science in the modern sense. This was true of uh, England and especially of Oxford University. The third huge new thing which was really a kind of revision of an old thing, was the rediscovery of art and literature, or the arts and literature. It was a rediscovery of symbolic thinking and symbolic um, language and, and imagination. Now, these things had never been entirely lost. There had always been some literature, some art, but it was, it was extremely confined But at the height of the Middle Ages, in the 12th, 13th, and early 14th centuries, you have this extraordinary burgeoning. You have it in the plastic arts in somebody like Giotto, and you have it in literature in somebody like Dante. These are great formulators, great pioneers, 
who who bring their own art to a perfection that had really never been seen before. And in important ways, this art and this literature is different from anything that had ever happened before. One, I have to say that the title of your book is Mysteries of the Middle Ages. I have to admit that I find the Middle Ages to be something of a mystery anyway. Tell me what people uh, tell me what people know about the Middle Ages. Well, we know a lot about the Middle Ages. It's not an unknown period. We have lots and lots and lots of documentation. The reason it appears mysterious is that it is so very different from our time, and yet it is the beginning of the modern world. There are many changes going on that create the beginnings of modern sensibility during the Middle Ages. We no longer have knights and their ladies and kings and queens. Even if we have kings and queens, they don't matter as much as they once did. And it's hard to put ourselves back into that time. We don't normally go on crusades, though, unfortunately. Our president, not too long ago, suggested that we were on a crusade in the Middle East. But um, comparisons to this time are still made such as that. Uh, So we do have some sense of it, but uh, it it was a time in which everyone had a role, whereas now we live in a time where no one has a role. No one has a defined role. It was once the case that I was a shoemaker, my father was a shoemaker, my son would be a shoemaker. I had a place within the hierarchy of my town Everyone knew who I was. I was necessary to the economy and the well-being of my town. I fit in somewhere. There's far more anxiety in our world because no one has, or very few people, have roles like that anymore. We make our own roles, and we have to do it on a daily basis. And if we don't succeed in keeping our head above water in some sense, we drown and we don't have the communal support that once held up the shoemaker, for instance, or, or anyone in any, you know, the candle maker, the, the man who, um, who re-roofed my house every spring. Each of these people had a definite role in the society. We've changed all of that in some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. But I think it's that aspect of the Middle Ages that is particularly different from our world and that makes it, therefore, harder for us to imagine what it would have been like. It makes it harder for us to imagine not just the perils of that world, but the contentments of that world. It sounds like a pretty contentment-filled world. What were some of the, uh, what were some of the perils? Well, it was it, it, uh, death was much more evident uh, than it is in our world. The mortality rates, by our standards, were horrible. Even in the most poverty-stricken parts of the third world today, the mortality rates are better, uh, unless there's a plague going on or you know a, a, a current famine or something like that. The mortality rates are better than they were in the Middle Ages. And why is that? Because the medicine is better, basically. Why is the medicine better? Because in the Middle Ages, people began to 
think seriously about medicine again and to try to do something about mortality rates. But it took from then till now to get to the stage that we're at. But that's that's really, I mean, the way death stalked ordinary life in the Middle Ages would leave most of us unable to sleep at night. Uh, So it's not surprising when you go into a medieval church and you look around at the art that very often the figure of death is there, crouching among the people in the scene because he was very present So to such an extent that he almost seemed a figure of their lives. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio this week is Thomas Cahill. Cahill's a Fordham alum, and he is the author of the popular Hinges of History series of books. The latest of these books is Mysteries of the Middle Ages. It's out in paperback this week, and it is what we are talking about today on the show. Let's get back to that conversation. One thing that all these people that you talk about in your book have in common is that they do come out of this Catholic context. Actually, the uh, the title of the hardcover version of the book is The Rise of Feminism, Science, and Art from the Cults of Catholic Europe. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. The mysteries of the Middle Ages, in my view, are not, you know, they're not the mysteries of detective fiction. Um, the word mystery is originally used by the Greeks to mean the worship of the serial goddess which was a very secret form of worship that nobody who was not a devotee was supposed to know about. So the mysteries were secret. When the Christian church emerges from the Greek world, it names its own rituals mysteries. What we in the Western world call sacraments in uh, the Greek East are called mysteries. And that word was used of all sorts of things. It came to be used, for instance, of the particular worship or devotion to the Virgin Mary. It was used of the particular worship or devotion to the elements of the Eucharist, to the bread and the wine. And interestingly, both of those mysteries become the trigger for what happens during the Middle Ages. The mystery of the Virgin Mary was everywhere from about the 10th, 11th centuries. More and more churches were de- were dedicated to her, for instance, rather than to her son, who was the central figure of Christianity. And if you looked up at the apse of a cathedral, as likely as not, rather than seeing Christ the judge, you would see Mary the mother with a little baby on her lap. This happened more and more and more, and those visual images began to change the sensibility of the Western world to such an extent that there was a real shift in cultural sensibility going on that enabled people to imagine a woman in a central role, which would not have been possible, say, in the dreary 8th century (laughs) It just would never have happened. In a similar way, the bread and wine of the Eucharist became the basis 
in certain ways for science. There was great controversy as to what the Eucharist was, you know, which we know we know from the other end of it, the fights between Catholics and Protestants over transubstantiation or consubstantiation, or is it just a symbol, or what is it anyway? You know, what did what did Christ mean by it? What does what should we mean by it? What do we think we're doing when we have a mass or a memorial of the Lord's Supper or whatever you want to call it? Um, and and the beginning of those arguments went way back into the Middle Ages. What? Well, what? What is this anyway? Uh, and you have a number of different answers to that question from philosophers or theologians, if you like. But they are then people who are forced back on even more basic questions. Well, what is bread anyway? Can one substance change into another substance? How does the material world come to be? How did we come to be? Well, these are basically, they are philosophical questions, but they're also scientific questions. And they begin to form the basis of medieval science, uh, which does begin to ask questions like, what is matter? What can we do with it? Can it be transformed? So that along with the questions about the Eucharist, you have all through the Middle Ages questions about, well, could we turn mud into gold? Is that possible? Could we do, could we somehow do that? Boy, that would be a trick to pull off. So you have strange people working with substances and trying to see what they can do with them. Well, it's the beginning of chemistry. It's the beginning of of, of chemical laboratories. At first, they may seem more like magicians than like scientists, but gradually they do discover many things about the properties of the material world and they become closer and closer to what we would consider to be modern scientists. In a similar but different way, the artists and writers are influenced by the idea that God became man, another mystery, the mystery of the incarnation. If God became man, then the world as we experience it, the material world, is somehow elevated to a new level. And whereas the Greeks thought that matter was something to get rid of as soon as possible, that what we wanted was a spiritual world, we wanted to be free of our bodies, the medievals aren't so sure about that. And that's because of the mystery of the Incarnation. And they begin to celebrate the material world in a way that had never been done in pagan times had never been done by the Greeks and the Romans. They begin to like the idea of having bodies, of being bodies. And so you have a new kind of art as a result that is much more interested in celebrating human experience and human bodies and human interactions. And you have a new kind of poetry that's much more interested in those same celebratory experiences than was ancient poetry, which is far, far, far more pessimistic than anything that you find, especially in the high Middle Ages. Once you have people like Dante getting underway, you have a great upsurge 
in what I think we can only, looking back on it, called op- call optimism. It, it pushes aside the pessimism of the pagan world, of the Greco-Roman world, which in many ways, uh, that, that world, that Greco-Roman world, is, a, is, of course, one of our great influences, the other being the Judeo-Christian world. So we have these two great sets of influences that finally, for the first time in the Middle Ages, interact with one another and interact successfully and interestingly and with a a great benefit to us. So we're talking about sort of the idea of faith being one of the bases of modern science. And that leads me to wonder about sort of the worldview of medieval people, because I consistently, when when I look at history, one of the things I find it really hard to get my mind around is the fact that people just thought about the world and life and everything in a fundamentally different way from how we think about it. How would somebody from in the Middle Ages have seen the world? What would have been sort of the big things that they thought about? Uh, even the word faith is a word that we use a lot more often, funnily enough, I think, than they did in the Middle Ages. And the reason that we do is because only some people have faith. Some people will talk about their faith as others will sit and listen quietly and wonder what on earth they're talking about or not be able to imagine such a condition of mind for themselves. There were no atheists in the Middle Ages. You can look and look and look. You you find extremely evil people who actually end up taking the side of Satan, but you don't find real atheists, people who say, well, there is no other world. It's not there. It's just the only the world we have. That's all there is. Um, so that, that that's another way that it's very hard for us to, to get back into that um, framework. People simply believe that they, they were so surrounded by in art, in literature, in ceremony, they were so surrounded by evidence of religion, of Christian religion, that it it was all it really just didn't happen that they didn't believe. The only thing that you have really is small communities of Jews who were believers of a somewhat different stripe. You also have, um, especially as time goes on, you have the beginnings of what came to be viewed as heresy. You have. Christian heretics who are believing in somewhat odd solutions to theological problems or what look odd to us now. But that's as far as it goes. You don't have genuine atheists. And I think that that's a result of uh, partly of the shortness of life. If you think you might be dead tomorrow, you may be much more likely to jump onto the belief train. But I think that what is even more likely is that the omnipresence of Christian myth within the medieval context made it very difficult for anyone to actually see outside that context. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little bit later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, here today, but will it be gone tomorrow? We'll talk about efforts to preserve the city's past and its present. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, 
I'm talking today on Fordham Conversations with Thomas Cahill. Cahill's a graduate of Fordham University, and he is the author of the Hinges of History series of books. The latest of these is Mysteries of the Middle Ages. It's out this week in paperback from Anchor Books. In that book, Cahill looks at how the religious lives of medieval artists, scientists, politicians, clergy, and ordinary people help to create the modern world we live in today. Let's get back to it. So, basically, for people at this time, religion completely structured their lives, you're saying? Yes, but not the way we would think of it as doing. It was much more ordinary for them. It was not something always on a very high level. They, for instance, could joke about it in a way that very few modern religious people would be willing to do. They had something called the Feast of Fools every year in which they brought a child or a fool into the church to portray the bishop to act as the bishop for the day. Sometimes they even brought in an ass dressed as a bishop. I don't think that you would find something, a a ceremony like that going on at St. Patrick's Cathedral this year. I don't think the Pope would like that. No, I don't think the local ordinary would like it very much either. So, you know, to say that that religion structure in their lives makes, makes them all sound terribly solemn. They were not. They were much more like real insiders in the religion. There's a wonderful anti-clericalism that runs through medieval literature. They were constantly making fun of priests and particularly of bishops. And they were even making fun of their own sacred characters. You know, the, the medieval mystery play in which Noah and his wife are on the ark and arguing with one another like any man and his wife might be arguing with one another. So they were religious, but they weren't that pious. They were not solemn. You might even say they were pious because they believed, uh, but they could have an awful lot of fun with these things in a way that I think would scandalize many religious people today. I want to talk a little bit more about um, about this emergence of powerful women thing, because I think it's an interesting contrast to the way that people tend to think about Christianity. How did that happen during this period, and why do you talk about it as being something that really started during the Middle Ages? Well, again, I'm not sure why it starts in a way, except that I do think it does start from the images of the Virgin Mary in churches, that this was a great shift. If you look at the history of Christian art, it really starts in Greece or under the influence of Greece. The initial... Christian art is really the art of the icon. You usually see a saint all by himself, or sometimes, and not very often, herself, against a gold background. The saint is not in conversation with anyone, except maybe on occasion the devil. But normally, the saint is looking at you in a rather sorrowful and serious and even disapproving way. That's Christian art to start with. When the artist tackled the subject of Christ himself, Christ was usually put in an apse at the very height of the church. He was Christ the judge. He was looking down on you. His brow was immensely furrowed with 
disapproval. This is kind of tough stuff to live under. Then you have in the West, especially in in Rome and Italy, a change that really begins in the 12th century where these icons begin to be softened. Um, you see two people in conversation rather than one saint staring at you with disapproval. Um, sometimes they're even turned toward one another. This is an immense change to see saints in profile as if they were no- normal, ordinary human beings in concert with other human beings, in interactions with other human beings. Then you begin to see Christ himself in such scenes, in profile, talking to others. These changes in the West are largely made possible by the new centrality of the figure of the Virgin and Child. The more we see of the Virgin and Child, the more we realize that these mysteries, these these unspeakable religious mysteries, are really about very ordinary things, uh, so that they can be about things as ordinary as a woman taking care of a baby. They can be as ordinary as a woman offering her breast to the baby, which is shown again and again and again in Western medieval art. The mother holding her breast out to the baby. This is extraordinary because this was a scene that you could see everywhere. There wasn't a street that you walked down that didn't have a mother and a child in that configuration. So our ordinary lives are what is holy. And that means also that ordinary women are holy. And this is the beginning of a new way of looking at the world, which enables women to have a role that is at least virtually and potentially equal to that of a man. Well, I will ask you one more question, and I'm going to close with this. You switch gears at the end of the book, and you make some pretty strong recommendations about modern Catholicism. Tell me about that. I have to say that the Catholic Church has become a great disappointment. It did not address the pedophilia crisis. It still hasn't done so. The American bishops have pretended to address it, but they've mostly addressed it with uh, public relations gambits. Um, What they really should have done, they all should have resigned, gone off in sackcloth and ashes, given what they had allowed to happen. Unfortunately, the church, which in its initial phases in ancient Christianity was was really the world's first democracy, has become a kind of gerontocracy led by old males, supposedly celibate males, who really don't have a clue. The church should be what it once was, what it is in the Acts of the Apostles, which is the ecclesia, the assembly of God's people, 
in which decisions are taken by all the people, not by a hidden, self-appointing group. And I think that that has brought the church to its current crisis, which could turn out to be terminal. The book is called Mysteries of the Middle Ages, and I was speaking today with Thomas Cahill. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nora. You can learn more about Thomas Cahill's work at thomascahill.com. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show's available as a podcast at wfuv.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Conversations at wfuv.org. We would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.